Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, and it's not intended for all audiences. This episode contains discussions on sex, violence, and death by suicide, so listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season four, episode one, and we're so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be kicking off season four by discussing Tim Burton's instant spooky classic, Beetlejuice. It premiered on March 30th, 1988, and it stars Gina Davis, Winona Ryder, Alec Baldwin, Catherine O'Hara, and Michael Keaton. All right, well, let's get this morning started. So in the early 1980s, prolific horror novelist Michael McDowell and his partner Lawrence Senelik were brainstorming ideas for a new spooky film. They wanted to make something that was reminiscent of the poltergeist and Ghostbusters. After a while, Senelik pitched... What if the ghosts were the good guys, and they tried to get rid of the horrible living humans inhabiting their home? With this concept in mind, McDowell devised a script in which a professional bioexorcist scares off its living occupants. So McDowell's original script was far less comedic and much darker than the final product. The studio was not happy with how dark the script was, so another writer, Warren Scarin, was asked to come in and lighten the mood. Warren Scarin. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I hope I'm saying that right. Scarin. Warren Scarin. Either way, it's a cool name. Yes, it is. You're right. <laughs> so uh, we'll talk a little bit more about like how dark this script was and, and what had to change. But even with the changes, it was still having a difficult time finding a studio that wanted to actually make it. It seemed like everyone wanted it, but everyone was also too afraid to make it. At just 27 years old, Tim Burton released his directorial debut, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, in 1985, and it was such a huge financial success that Burton was immediately considered a bankable director. He was so sought after by major studios that he was sent hundreds of scripts, but none of them captured his fancy. It wasn't until Geffen Film Company, who eventually picked up Beetlejuice, had sent him the script, and he began to have a little bit more faith. After several actors were considered, including Sammy Davis Jr. for Beetlejuice, Michael Keaton was cast in the title role. Burton was worried because he was unfamiliar with Keaton's work, but being a young, fresh director, he just didn't argue, which (laughs) is good. Yes. So Winona Ryder and Catherine O'Hara were quick to hop on board the film, but it took a while for any of the other actors to approach the project because many of them thought that the script was just too weird. (laughs) Beetlejuice's budget was $15 million, with just $1 million given over to the visual effects work. Considering the scale and scope of the effects, which included stop motion, replacement animation, prosthetic makeup, and puppetry and blue screen, it was always Burton's intention to make the style similar to the B-movies that he grew up with as a child. 
Before Beetlejuice was released in late March, there were test screenings and they were met with such positive feedback and with such love for the character of Beetlejuice that Burton decided to film an epilogue featuring Beetlejuice in the afterlife. The film earned over $8 million in its opening weekend and eventually grossed over $73 million in North America, making it another financial success for Burton. Wow, dang. I know. Most critics loved Beetlejuice as well, including critic Jonathan Rosenbaum of the Chicago Reader, who felt that Beetlejuice carried an originality and creativity that no other film had. Hmm. Now, with that said, Abby, could you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. So, Barbara and Adam Maitland are ghosts trapped in their beautiful Connecticut house that they remodeled together with an awful couple who bought the house after their death, uh, Charles and Delia Dietz, along with their teenage daughter, Lydia, who is the only one who can see them. They try everything they can to haunt the Dietzes out of their home, but nothing works, so they call on the help of Beetlejuice, the bio-exorcist. <laughs> It turns out, though, that it's more trouble not only for the Dietz family, but for Barbara and Adam as well. Beetlejuice soon sets his sights on Lydia and wants to make her his bride so that he can roam freely in the mortal world and wreak havoc and just be mischievous. After Lydia summons Beetlejuice for help protecting Barbara and Adam from her money-hungry parents who perform a seance with the help of their friend Otho, she soon realizes her mistake and finds herself being married off to Beetlejuice. Barbara and Adam intervene and save Lydia, though. And after they help each other, the Dietz and Maitlands decide to live together in harmony in the house. Wow. Yeah. What a happy story. It's pretty magical. It is, actually. It's a very magical movie. <laughs> so thank you for that, Abby. Oh, you're welcome. All right. Well, let's, let's discuss. Yes. So the Bechdel test. Yes, it passes, and it actually passes a few times. Yes. I was actually really excited about I this. Know. This movie is maybe more supernatural fantasy comedy. Yeah. But there's some horror aspects to it. There's yeah. ghosts, there's hauntings, there's some gore. Yeah. So I'm going to call it horror comedy. Yeah. I don't care what the critics say. <laughs> so we review films like this, and very... Very rarely do they pass the Bechdel test, even though horror movies and supernatural movies do have a lot of women in them. Mm -hmm. This one passes, and it passes a few times. And it passes once when Barbara and Juno are talking about being dead, and Lydia and Delia talk about the house being haunted. And that one is just between Lydia and, and Delia, by the way. So there's no other men in that scene, which is kind of nice. Mm -hmm. So that whole scene is about them talking about the house being haunted. And it also happens again when Barbara and Lydia are talking about death. Yes. So that's pretty great. Yeah. Okay, so let's see if it passes Nancy's Dream Team test. So far, I don't think any movie we've reviewed so far has passed it all the way through. No, yeah. All right, so let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. For those of you who need an explanation of this test and where we got our ideas from, check out the show notes. I've linked a blog post in the show notes where you guys can read about why we started this new test. So, one, was the supporting cast at least 50% women? Close, mm -hmm. but not quite. Yeah. There's a lot of women in this film, especially uh, as background characters, but there's only about eight women with speaking roles, and I counted about 13 men with speaking roles. Oh, wow. So it's a, it's a bit more... 
And I counted it like that because there are like there's a janitor who speaks to the Maitlands in the afterlife. Yep. Who's a male. Um, so I was like, well, I want to count him because, you know, he has a yeah. speaking role. He may not have a name, but he has a speaking role. So I right. thought, all right, well, I'm going to have to count this person. So after I counted all of the speaking roles, I counted eight for women. So, but it's close. Yeah. I just feel like that's still pretty good for a film that came out in 88, 30, 30 years ago, by the way. Wow. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So two, did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? Okay. So technically no, but I do want to tell a little story about how uh, the film got picked up by Geffen Film Company. Mm -hmm. So Marjorie Lewis was a young development executive at Geffen Film Company, and she was taking future Beetlejuice producer Larry Wilson's film class. And uh, during this film class, I guess they would like all read scripts and sort of scrutinize or discuss the scripts in a classroom because it was mostly, I guess, for like people who wanted to be producers. Yeah. So she actually told Larry Wilson how she reads every script that's sent to Geffen Film Company. Mm-hmm. And she's a really fast reader. So he heard that and thought, hmm, I actually have a script for you to read. And he actually knew Michael McDowell, who wrote the screenplay. And he was like, I have this really interesting screenplay. <laughs> and I wonder if you could read this and uh, see what you think. And of course she did. She read it in a night and she oh my was blown away by it. She was like, this is the future of film. <laughs> <laughs> and she loved it so much that the next day she went to her boss's desk and her boss was Geffen president, Eric Eisner. And she dropped it on his desk and she was like, I implore you to buy the script. And if you don't, she was like, I'm quitting. Wow. Yeah. Girl, and- stand your ground. Yes. <laughs> and so because of her, Beetlejuice was made. Amazing. Or at least it was picked up by a film company. Oh, my so, God. Yeah. So a woman did get Beetlejuice made in that sense. Get it. I know. It's very exciting. So number three, was the final girl a person of color? It's not really any final girls in this. I guess Lydia could be, but yeah. that's more of a slasher trope. Yeah. Either way, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're all of the main characters in this are white. Um, okay. So four, were there any openly LGBTQ characters in this film? All right. So I always assumed, even as a kid, that Otho was gay. Yes. Because Glenn Shaddix, who plays him, is gay. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not openly said in the film that he's gay. Yeah. But I think we're meant to assume that, yes, he is, in fact, a gay man. Yeah. The script was written by a gay couple, and I, you know, I I would not be surprised if they wanted to add that in there. Yeah. So I, 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 yes, we can assume that, but I also don't want to assume. Yeah. And I'm just going to pass the question off to you listeners. Do you (laughs) think Otho is gay? And please don't crucify us. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) For assuming that, yes, he is. Yes. Uh, But yeah, I really, I really want to know what people think. So yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. Well, there's that. So let's talk about that original Beetlejuice script that was much more sinister. Oh, dear. So Mental Floss stated that, quote, 
Originally, it imagined Beetlejuice as a winged demon <laughs> whose human form was that of a small Middle Eastern man. <laughs> um, and his plan for the Dietzes was more about rape and murder um, than mischief and marriage. Oh. <laughs> I don't like it. I know. Well, and that's the thing is that Michael McDowell was like a huge like horror writer during that time and I can see him doing that but I don't know like yes and then rape and murder eh, it's not a family film no, anymore after that not really <laughs> also the Maitland's uh car crash was supposed to be much more gruesome oh p.s about that car crash yeah that's a Volvo that they're driving <laughs> You would, you know what? what? They wouldn't have died in real life because Volvos are the safest cars. <laughs> I'm very passionate about this, if you cannot tell. Also, it was in beautiful shape, and Tim Burton just threw it in the water. <laughs> I am outraged. Beautiful banana Volvo. <laughs> I was pretty upset. Oh, my gosh. Well, okay, so then you would have been more upset with what happened in the original script. Oh, because no. Barbara gets her arm taken off. <gasps> oh, my God. And if you guys remember in the film, she says, oh, my arm is so cold. Yeah. That was actually a line that was kept from the original script uh, because her arm was supposed to have been, like, cut off in the crash yikes yeah and so she's talking specifically about her arm because she loses it like her real body loses it yeah yeah gross yes so it is gross so that happened and the movie originally had a lot more language in it mm. now let's talk a little bit about that because this movie after all of its editing and all of this family fun stuff thrown in is rated PG. Wild. Yet there is one f**k <laughs> in it. <laughs> Just one. One and done. And he says, because he says, nice f**king model. And yeah. then he grabs his junk. And, and, and it, <laughs> it makes what? a honking noise. Yeah, yikes there, buddy. He needs so, to go get that checked out. <laughs> so... This movie, I have to, I have to say it again. This movie is PG. Nuts. Well, Jaws was PG. But Jaws never had the F word. Oh, you're right. It didn't. Nope. It was pretty gory. But yeah, language wasn't. Yeah, you're right. Wow. Right. But Jaws, I think, came out before the PG-13 rating came Ah, out, too. Okay. Now, Beetlejuice came out a few years after the PG-13 rating was around. Wow. So it's that's sh- super so be- surprising. Yeah. So because there's one f- in it, they should have made it at least PG 13. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know how you can be a censor and watch this film and miss that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's very prominent. Yeah. It's right there. It's so prominent that it's very easy to cut out. Like when you watch Beetlejuice on TV, like it's on what the it's not CW it's something else. Yes, because I remember watching it when I was little, and I didn't know that that scene was in the movie until I was much older and watched uh, a DVD copy of it, and I was like, "What 
in the hay. Yeah, the same. I think I actually even was watching it with one of my younger sisters when. <laughs> and you were like, oh, whoops. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, that just happened. Yikes. And then it's immediately the next scene. And you're like, uh. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty abrupt. It is. But, but it's, it's perfect for his character. It's it's so perfect. And it should be there for that because of that but it's so easy to cut out because it's like after he knocks the tree down it immediately can get cut to adam fixing the fake tree in his miniature Mm -hmm. it's a totally like different single separate scene of him saying that word and honking his junk (laughs) so the fact that they didn't notice that is so strange to me I can't get over it. I still can't even get over that you just said honking his junk. What else would I say it? I don't know. (laughs) Okay. It's good, though. It's good. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Holy cats. Okay. So that's that's Beetlejuice. Yeah. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about Beetlejuice's name as well, because his name is Beetlejuice. That's how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. But it's not spelled how it is spelled in the film. Yeah. Because Beetlejuice is spelled B-E-T-E-L-G-E-U-S-E. Mm-hmm. And Beetlejuice, for those of you who might not know, is the second brightest star in the Orion constellation. Yep. And that's what he's named after. Now, throughout the movie and in the end credits, his name is spelled like the star's name. But in the opening credits and title card, it's spelled beetle, like the bug, mm-hmm. and juice, like the drink. And even in the poster, it's spelled beetle juice, like, right. like the bug and the drink. Mm-hmm. So why? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> why would you do that? So uh, the reviewers over at Cinefix, uh, which is a YouTube channel, they said that it's because people are stupid. <laughs> Well, that's one answer, I guess. It's not the official answer, but it's basically (laughs) why it happened. Uh, It's sort of joked about in the film. Like, they call him that beetle guy, beetle geis. Yeah. uh, Beetle Meyer. Beetle Meyer. They think that maybe because nobody could pronounce it, that they sort of just thought that it was called Beetlejuice. Yeah. And so that's why they (laughs) called it Beetlejuice, the bug and the drink. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people think that it was also because it was easier to market that way. Yeah. If you market it Beetlejuice spelled like the star, people might look at that and think, what do- is that even right. mean? Right. But if you spell it like the bug in the drink, it's much easier for people to sort of understand yeah. that maybe. Plus it just sounds gross and he's gross. So, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so Michael Keaton, who plays Beetlejuice. I love Michael Keaton. Yeah, so uh, Burton encouraged Michael Keaton to improv a lot of his scenes. Yes. So even though he does say a lot of stuff that's that's scripted, Mm -hmm. you can tell that he adds a few things in that aren't so much even gestures yes like he adds in like really like obnoxious gestures and Mm. stuff Mm -hmm. uh and that was all keaton and it took him only two weeks to film all of his scenes whoa super fast he's only in the movie for about 17 and a half minutes yeah that's true so it took him only about two weeks to film 
And he said in an interview for Rolling Stone that he just would show up and just go freaking nuts. Oh, my God. He did. He just was, he was like, um, he said, quote, it was rave acting. You rage for 12 to 14 hours. Then you go home tired and beat and exhausted. It was pretty damned cathartic. Oh, my God. So he just went nuts for two weeks for hours and hours every day. And he felt amazing. Holy (laughs) crap. Yeah, he just released all of his pent-up anger, I guess. Beetlejuice therapy. Beetle, it's, that should be a thing. Beetlejuice therapy. Oh, my God. So that's what he did. We're starting it. Okay, <laughs> yes, exactly. So <laughs> let's talk about the women in this film. Yes. So I don't know why I thought of this, and maybe it's total BS, but when I was watching this, I thought, you know, Lydia, Delia, and Barbara reminded me of the triple goddess. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. you said that they reminded you of the three egos. Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, or well, like three traits of personality. I guess it's like Freudian theory and that kind of thing. So, talk a little bit about that. Like, what is the 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 egos? Yeah. So, um, in previous episodes, we talk about like um, the id, the ego, and the super ego. Right. And your id is like all of your evil impulses and like your selfishness and that kind of thing your ego is the middle ground between the id and the super ego and the super ego is like your ideal self the part of you that wants to do good and it keeps the id in check and that kind of thing and your your ego itself is just kind of stuck in the middle so you could easily apply this to the three women in this movie with Lydia being the ego right in the middle of Delia, who is the id, mm-hmm. and then Barbara, who is the superego, which is incredible to me because I never really thought about it until we discussed it further. But like it's the three traits of personality represented so perfectly in this movie because Delia is like this crazy, selfish, like very much wants the spotlight on her and wants to be recognized for her art and she just wants greatness and Barbara is everything that's good and she takes care of people and she loves her husband and she's just very loving so Lydia is obviously the go-between because she's the only one who can see Barbara and she communicates with Delia so it's just kind of crazy how that worked out Uh, Wow, that is so great. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the triple goddesses as well. So in common neo-pagan usage, the three female figures are frequently described as the maiden, the mother, and the crone, Mm -hmm. each of which symbolize both a separate stage in the female life cycle. So like there's also that also kind of phases with the moon as well and often rules Mm. one of the realms of the earth. Mm -hmm. So there's earth, underworld, and heavens, right? Hmm. Okay, so Robert Graves, who was a poet and critic, said that he saw the triple goddess as the muse of all poetry in both ancient and modern literature. So the maiden could be Lydia, who represents enchantment, inception, expansion, the promise of new beginnings, birth, youth, and youthful enthusiasm, while the mother, Delia, could represent sexuality, fulfillment, power, and the crone, Barbara, represents wisdom, repose, death, and endings represented by a waning moon. Whoa, that's nuts. Yeah, That's so crazy. So 
that to me is so amazing that this film has three major female characters who each represent something that we will all eventually connect to, Mm -hmm. which is really cool. Yes. So what do you think of that, Abby? Like, what do you think of that as, as in like a story wise? Like, do you think that's a great way to represent major female characters in films? Yes, because there is someone that everyone can relate to if you have something like that. And I know that like we talked about who we would be as characters in this film. And it's so funny because like you could pick any character from this movie and they're totally relatable to someone out there. You know what I mean? And it's also really cool to have that concept of like the spiritual side of their characters, but also the scientific and like personality side of their characters. This movie is actually a lot deeper, I think, than people realize. So when you think about it in that light. Right. This this film shows these characters in such rich ways. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know what? That is one of the reasons why this film is so good. Yeah. I was watching this and I was like, ooh, sometimes I really feel like Delia. And then I was like, well, most times I really feel like Barbara. And then I thought, well, when I was younger, I really felt like Lydia. Yeah. And I thought, oh, wow, I felt like these women at different times, sometimes different days, you just feel like a different person. Right, exactly. And it's just so cool Mm -hmm. to like watch that unfold. There's a lot of other things in this that come in threes as well. Like uh, John Kenneth Muir wrote a great article, and we'll talk a little bit more about him, uh, but he wrote a great article and review about Beetlejuice. And he talked about how there are three levels of existence in this film. Mm-hmm. There's the tabletop miniature, the mortal life, and the afterlife. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So the miniature is sort of like what Barbara and Adam sort of want. Yep. But it's also what uh, the Dietzes want because they, they take that miniature, bring it downstairs, and sort of like talk about where everything is going to be that they where they want it to be for this new like amusement park that they want to make in that town. Right. So each of the couples um, has an idea of what they want this place to be like. Yeah. And Beetlejuice is so funny. He also inhabits it. He ha- inhabits both of them, sort of. Yeah. So he's an issue for both of them. Yeah. Uh, the mortal life is, you know the world that the living live in, obviously. And then the afterlife is, of course, the afterlife. Mm-hmm. And um, and how everybody relates to those different levels. And then, of course, there's the three levels of the afterlife in general, right? There's yeah. there's heaven, limbo, and hell. Mm-hmm. And it's up to us to kind of figure out which one's which. Right. Ooh. Yeah. Good Morning Nancy is proudly sponsored by Recess Coffee. We wouldn't be able to create such great content without being fueled by their magical beans. And the great part is, is that each batch of coffee is locally, artisanally roasted, and it comes from fair trade farmers. Gracie, what's your favorite blend? Oh my gosh. Okay, so my favorite blend is the Westcott blend. It has African and Indonesian beans mixed to create a clean, rich, and full-bodied cup of coffee. Mm. It has a rich floral vanilla aroma with a sugared almond flavor and a lemon finish. Yum! Ooh, delicious. My favorite is the Austin's blend. It's a unique blend of African, Indonesian, and Central American beans roasted to create a characteristically rich, dark, and smoky cup. It has a bold roasted nut aroma with chocolate flavors and a smooth, fruity finish. The coffee is seriously so good. I don't even have to put any cream or sugar in it. I just 
drink it black like my soul. (laughs) (laughs) So guys, head on over to recesscoffee.com to order yours today. Or if you're a Syracuse local, stop by either shop at 110 Harvard Place or 110 Montgomery Street. So drink coffee, shoot lightning. Now back to the show. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the parents and children in Beetlejuice. So uh, Gina Davis as Barbara and Alec Baldwin as Adam play a childless couple. And they talk about it in the beginning, how it's a minor sort of plot point where the cousin or whoever she is, she's related to them. Yeah, she's related to Barbara. Yeah, she comes in and she's like, oh, this house, this big, beautiful house should belong to a family. Ugh, cringe. I cringe every time I hear that. Right, and just because Barbara and Adam don't have children doesn't mean they're not a family unit. Right. So why can't they have this beautiful big house to themselves? Oh, my God. So anyway, so but it's sort of implied that they're trying to have kids and they can't. Mm-hmm. Of course, Adam brings it up that they can try again. So it, it's shown that this is something that they are trying to still do is have a family. Yeah. John Kenneth Muir says in his article and review for Beetlejuice, he says, Here, a couple of innocent and childless ghosts end up the spiritual parents of an isolated, vulnerable goth girl, Lydia. <laughs> Uniquely, this relationship is depicted as wholly symmetrical. Barbara and Adam Maitland appear to learn as much from the young woman as she gleans from her experience with them. Mm-hmm. It's a nice, folksy aesthetic, especially considering what the protagonists are up against in the scheme of things. Yeah. That's so it's true. actually a very simple adoptive family story. Yes. You know, which yes. is kind of interesting. I love it. What's also really cool is that there's a great article at Horror Homeroom, and it's called Beetlejuice and the Invisibility of Childless Couples. And Gwen, uh, there's no last name for the author, her name is Gwen, she talks about how even in life, Barbara and Adam aren't seen as a real family unit because they don't have children. Just like how they're not seen when they're ghosts. And it's not until a child, Lydia, who understands them and connects to them is that is when they're seen by humans. Because even after she sees them, then they start doing stuff that makes others notice them. Right. So it's not until she becomes a part of their life that the other Dietzes and their friends start to notice spiritual activity around oh the place. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a great look into this film. That's so true. Yeah, and w- but what's also kind of trying is that it still sort of shows that you're not validated unless you have kids, though. Yeah. Because even though it's like a really cool concept, it's like, oh, but still, they still have to be validated by having a child in their life. Yeah. Unfortunately, that is how it ends. Yeah. What I also thought was really interesting was that because this was written by a man and his male partner, you can kind of maybe see where they got the idea for Barbara and Adam. And yeah, that, could, that is true. Yeah, it could be easily be them. And honestly, Barbara and Adam could be played by any gender of people. Yeah, that's true. And it's definitely a reflection of, I guess, the times. This came out in, what, 88? And, mm-hmm. you know, it, I'm, it was still frowned upon and some parts of the country and that kind of thing to be gay and be a gay couple and maybe adopt kids and that kind of thing and I mean it still is so that was probably a way for them to I mean express that without right Hmm. all right so let's talk a little bit more about the goth culture 
and Beetlejuice. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> here's a brief history of goths, courtesy of author Micah Isset. At its roots, goth is a modern version of an aesthetic with very, very old roots. The original goths, and that's with a capital G, were a Germanic tribe who were, quote, derived from medieval conquest, fueled by dark romanticism, and reinvented in the 20th century youth culture. The title has been transferred from generation to generation, taking on new meanings with each manifestation. So being goth actually can change through the times, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. In his book, Isset's book called Goths and a Guide to American Subculture, it's prominently noted in this book that the release of Beetlejuice was a huge moment for goth culture. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, Hot Topic opened that same year. Yes. Oh my (laughs) God. In 1988. And has been making all of my dreams come true ever since. (laughs) Thank you, Hot Topic. So uh, the character Lydia, who is played by Winona Ryder, is one of the earliest film portrayals of a goth person. (laughs) Yes, or at least the general public opinion of what a goth looks like and acts like. Yep. So this was a huge historical moment. Yes. Beetlejuice, (laughs) surprisingly enough. Yes. Most goth characters in films are young women uh, and... Isset thinks that this is perhaps because mainstream audiences are more readily able to accept a feminized goth look yeah. than on a, on a woman than on a man. Mm-hmm. Um, but Burton explored something new. Uh, what happens when a yuppie culture collides with a twisted culture? You know, and he did the same thing with Edward Scissorhands as well. He kind of brought in this very gothy, gothic yes. character yep. and put him right into suburbia. It's so interesting to see, like, Like, to us now, this is nothing really new, but to think back in 1988, to see a character like this in a mainstream film who is into weird stuff, and she has a hobby, she takes photos, and she wears black, and she has crazy bangs, like, (laughs) she wears a veil, a morning veil to dinner, you know, so it's just, this is something that nobody really had seen before and now it's so such a cultural icon Mm -hmm. Lydia is and we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end (laughs) thanks Lydia yeah so that's amazing another really serious thing that Beetlejuice handles really well is mortality and the afterlife now Scarin who was the gentleman who came in and tried to not make Beetlejuice so (laughs) r-rated um he actually was very much like Michael McDowell in his interests in like, like he was really into the occult, death and mourning in Victorian times. And he actually uh, reports that one of his favorite books was Ernest Becker's The Denial of Death, which is a scientific book about how humans respond to death and dying. Mm -hmm. And so that was like a huge influence for him. And so even though he kind of made it a little bit lighter in tone, he still had that sort of idea of what it's like to be around death and mourning. He wasn't like the Mickey Mouse version 
of McDowell. Like he was still on the same page as McDowell when it came to death and dying. And McDowell himself collected death-related artifacts. And right now you can actually see all of the stuff that he collected at Northwestern University. Whoa. Yeah. And he had stuff like headstone design templates and like funeral gown advertisements and coffin plates and funeral wreaths and spirit photography and postcards depicting executions and murder scenes and mummified bodies like wow that sounds like my dream decor line honestly it's so true though right (laughs) he and so you can still see this stuff at northwestern university that's awesome you know it's really interesting how mcdowell sort of saw the afterlife you can kind of tell with everything that he collected it was sort of like i mean he died really young oh man and he sort of saw death as like a joke and life was sort of a joke as well he was like we're just sort of like rummaging around in these flesh bodies until it's just time to be over and I thought that was actually kind of an interesting outlook and I mean again going back to like how he depicted the afterlife like he saw it like you were at a DMV yes where it was like well like living is just as bad as death and death is just as bad as living it's all like the same adventure you're still waiting for a number to be called like you're still (laughs) you still need to go visit your caseworker you still need to go you know get rid of your noisy neighbors so I thought that that was really interesting and even like showing the lost souls room like people who were exercised from houses Mm -hmm. and like where they went and what happened to them it's sort of just like wow, that's so upsetting. But, you know, he just thought the whole thing was, oh, well, you yeah. know, like that's <laughs> just keep it moving. You instead know, instead of saying that's life, you'd say that's death kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I thought that was really interesting was that Barbara and Adam tell Lydia that being dead doesn't make anything easier. Yeah. So what do you think about how death and dying is portrayed in this film? It's definitely an interesting concept because it's just a reflection of life. Like there, like you were saying, there aren't humongous differences. Like there are still duties that you have to perform and they are a little bit different, but it's like the same concept. So if you're looking for an escape, that's probably not the way to go <laughs> because yeah. you're, those problems are still going to follow you no matter where you go. I think it's really interesting too that at the end of the film, Lydia is talking about what she's doing in school and like how busy she is and that kind of thing. So there's a little bit of hope there too, I think, that it offers people because before she's kind of shown just like traipsing around the house, like taking pictures, not really doing anything. Right. She seems bored and lonely. Yeah. So, and I mean, Barbara and Adam were super active and like they had hobbies and they were doing things and stuff like that and I think to have a different viewpoint from someone who um actually experiences death as opposed to someone who wants to die I think that's sort of refreshing I guess yeah I agree I mean it's an eye-opener for Lydia that really spoke to a lot of people and I wonder like part of me wonders if maybe someone had said that to if maybe someone had said that to the person who wrote the script or if it was said to Tim Burton at some point in his life and he wanted to put that message out there, it's just for the time that it came out, I feel like it was way ahead of anything else or approached it that way. Right. And approached it in a way that was not 
unkind. Right. Lydia, it was learning that she was loved by somebody. Important to also see that she wasn't being called selfish for yes, wanting it. Yes, that's what I was trying to say. Yeah. Like, because a lot of people still say that about suicide. Like, I can't believe they did that. It's so selfish. And it's like, well, it's because they're in pain. So, you know, it's not really... It's not really about being selfish, but Barbara never even brings that up. Like she doesn't even bring it to the table and she wants to understand why Lydia feels that way Mm -hmm. and then tell her like, okay, you know, your feelings are valid, but it's still not a good idea. What seems to make everything bearable in death or in life is having your family, Mm -hmm. whether that's your real family or your adoptive family or your friends like people you, you consider your the the people that you can connect with and be close with and that's what makes Lydia decide not to do it because she knows that no matter what she's gonna have Barbara and right. Adam yeah which is great yeah cool okay well final thought the legacy of Beetlejuice <laughs> Obviously, we didn't really get to talk about Danny Elfman at all, but one of the things that really stuck with me about Beetlejuice was this great, amazing score. Yes. And that is something that, to me, has lived on for just as long as the film has. Like, you recognize the Beetlejuice theme like you recognize Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice. Mm -hmm. And for me, like, the score was so cool because I guess, like, uh, Danny Elfman had like this whole different idea of what he wanted the score to be. Mm-hmm. And then when he saw like the clips from the film, he was like, oh, I need to change this. And he immediately like redid the theme and made it so. Yeah, it was like that. But I mean, that to me was like part of that beginning because his first film was The Forbidden Zone. And then he did Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And then Beetlejuice came out. And so really, this was only his third film. Whoa. Yeah. So it's amazing. And that's something that has stuck with me all these years. What stuck with you? Lydia. And also Delia. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think now that I'm older, I relate a lot more to Delia. <laughs> to right. To be really honest. But um, it was that kind of like acceptance of being weird and artsy and... I love Delia because she, like, her agent doesn't even like her work, but she's like, F it. I'm still going to do it anyway because it's what I want to do. Yeah. And she's, like, shocked. She's like, what? who cares about money? You believe in me. That's right. all that matters. Yeah. Right. So I have kind of carried that along with me throughout the years. And, I mean, also, Lydia... Like, her style is so iconic. She is a horror (laughs) girl icon. She has the style. She has the sass. She has the passion. You know, she has intelligence. She has confidence. That's the thing. She's confident in who she is. Yes. Because even at the end, when it's like, oh, happy, she's still a little goth girl. Yes. Because she has her freaking, you know, uniform that she has to wear for school. But then she has that little frill underneath it that's black and Mm -hmm. lacy. And it's, she still kind of has, wears her hair a certain way. And yes, I don't know. I think it's great. She's very confident in herself and she accepts herself. I mean, her famous line, I myself am strange and unusual. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, she's not the weird girl in a film who gets a makeover at the end. She's yes. consistently the weird girl. Yes. And it's awesome. I love that. 
Yeah, so. that was great. Yeah. You know, and Delia doesn't change either. No. She changes for the better. Yeah. But she doesn't change who she is deep down. She's still an artist. She still dresses funky. Yes. You know, which is really great. Any If anyone changes in this film, it's for the better. Yeah. And it's not in a way that's superficial or cheap. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about this crazy sequel. Is oh, it happening? Boy. At the time of this recording, it's not officially happening. <sighs> we had to record a few of these episodes ahead of time. So at the time of this recording, there is no Beetlejuice sequel yet, even though Winona Ryder and Michael Keaton on separate occasions have said that it might happen. And I think even Tim Burton suggested it might yeah. happen too. Yeah. Which is just like, what the heck is going on? Here's the thing. If they're going to make a sequel, it better not suck. Can I tell you all what the sequel was going to be back in 1988 when it first was announced that it might happen? Because this sequel has been in the works for 30 years. Oh my God, what? Are you ready? Tell me. It was going to be called Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. Mm -mm. (laughs) Mm-mm. And what was going to happen was that uh, Lydia and her parents were going to go to Hawaii and her dad was going to open this big humongous hotel and the spirits, the angry spirits on the island were upset and so they sent a bunch of demons and ghosts to attack her family and they also send Beetlejuice to go get them again. And Lydia summons a tidal wave and she crushes all the demons with this tidal wave. And But they're not people, so they can't drown. Also, Beetlejuice becomes something called Juicifer. Stop it. No, I'm, I'm not kidding. And it's like a de- he's like a demon version of him going back to the roots of the original script, I guess. So he becomes Jucifer? Jucifer. Makes me think of like somebody who's really into working out like a lot. Like a really buff Satan. It does. It sounds like a fancy name for a smoothie at like a hipster cafe. Jucifer. Oh my god. Somebody open a juice bar, please. And call Make it this juicifer. happen. Maybe we should come up with a recipe for one. Hey. Hey. That's a good idea. That's a great idea. Let's do it. Guys, okay. we're gonna do it. Oh my gosh. Well, this movie is so interesting. I love this film so much. I thought you were still talking about the sequel. No. <laughs> I was like, mm, okay, well. <laughs> but you're right. It's one of my favorites. It, it is. It's, it's one of my favorites. Classic. I, I told Abby this earlier, but I watched this film four times in one week because I just was so <laughs> thrilled by it. I just loved watching it. So you can't really describe this movie, I don't think. I don't really think you can pinpoint exactly what this movie is except for one thing i can just say it's it's a really bizarre and it's fun <laughs> yes it's fantastic anyway you guys thank you so much for joining us and thank you so much to our patrons especially our ellen ripley patrons james and jarvis for being super cool all the time yes 
And if you guys have the means, just $2 a month is extremely helpful. So you can head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy, pick your favorite final girl, and whatever you do decide to give really does help us out immensely. That's what keeps us around. That's what keeps Abby and I talking about movies, pays for our tickets to go see new movies to review. Like you guys really do help us out every month. So you're the best. Thank you so much. And I want to say thank you to our sponsors at Recess Coffee for supporting us and believing in us this season. They're so incredibly awesome. No joke. We love Recess Coffee and we both drink it every morning. Mm -hmm. And if you guys head on over to recesscoffee.com, you'll be able to buy your own coffee. And when you do purchase it, write in the comments uh, about how you heard about it on Good Morning Yancey. Yes. Also, stay hooked on our social media for more details. Uh, you can find us at Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. That's morning with an OU. And if you haven't already, don't forget to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. It takes just a few moments and it really helps us get recognition. Absolutely. That's another thing that really helps us out, you guys. Mm-hmm. So, we all love you to death, and we wouldn't be here without you. Yeah. Deo. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and have a great morning. Bye.